Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. So, you've had an interesting text overnight, I hear, Robert? Yes, a mate of mine who's sort of immersed in this kind of stuff pointed to a story in a, a tech magazine called, I think it's called The Information, which says that Johnny Ive, you know about him, he was the guy who created the iPhone for Apple all those years ago. Incredibly important designer. Is apparently working with Sam Altman of chat gpt and also mm. with mr son of softbank apparently they are working on a they call a hardware device to work with ai and, I, and the mind slightly boggles what a hardware object as you know I'm, i use so much ai every day at the moment i'm so obsessed with it so i'm very intrigued by all this and doubtless oh, we'll yeah. be coming back to this in the coming weeks yeah that's really interesting isn't it and there's also been some quite big and breaking news overnight hasn't there Yes, there has. This is, of course, to do with oil and where we get our oil from because the approval's now just been given, hasn't it, for uh, an oil field in an area called Rosebank. It's about 80 miles west of Shetland, so we're going to be able to start getting oil out of there. It's uh, apparently the UK's largest untapped oil field, and it could contain as much as 500 million barrels of oil. There's been loads of worries about the you know, climate change and environmental concerns, haven't there, with this? Yeah, I mean, it's just another example of how, you know, the government has moved away from the kind of ambition we saw, actually under Boris Johnson, that we would be literally at the cutting edge of countries, you know, coming off fossil fuels. I think it tells us something about the perceived weakness of the British economy that they feel they've got to give authorization to this. Anyway, look, I think if anybody's mm. listening wants to ask us questions about this, we'll definitely come back to it in coming weeks. Yeah. You know, how far should the UK be moving off fossil fuels? But what's on our agenda today, Steph? Yeah, and we've had a, a couple of questions about what's going on with oil, so we'll we'll answer them a little bit later uh, in the show as well. But what else are we talking about? HS2, obviously, lots of news on that this week, so we're going to talk about that first, aren't we? Then Murdoch, the big news about him stepping down as chairman. Totally right. That's an absolutely fascinating subject. Well, last week, we talked about one of the great business tycoons of our time, Elon Musk. I think we'll have a bit of a chat about the good and bad of Rupert Murdoch. and. I think we're also going to be talking a little bit, a bit about inheritance tax. Yep. There have been reports around the place, which I understand to be true, that the government is considering the total abolition of inheritance tax. Why are they doing that? What are the implications for things like younger people who can't afford to buy their own homes and all that kind of stuff? So there's big, yeah. big issues around that. The quirky 
impacts as well to do with stocks and shares. We'll talk about that, which is interesting as well. And then I think we're going to do something slightly different this week. We've been asking you to send in your questions. And I think we'll have a little segment at the end of the show where we try and shed some light on the subjects that you say you're interested in. Yeah. And thank you for all the questions you've been sending in. Just a reminder on that, if you do want to send them to us, the email address is restismoney at gmail.com. Or you can just put them on our socials as well. Do you want to kick us off then on HS2, Robert? Yeah. And this is uh, an extraordinary story uh, about a project that was essentially launched by Gordon Brown when he was prime minister back in 2009 with a cost of 37 odd billion quid. That was the estimate. Rishi Sunak is now considering culling the leg that goes from Birmingham up to Manchester, or at least delaying it by seven years, which in most people's minds, given that it was never going to come for you know, enormously long time anyway, that's the equivalent of culling it. And he's thinking about doing that because the cost estimate has gone up to well over a hundred billion pounds, a terrifying increase and an enormous amount of money when you know there are so many calls on the public purse, whether it's fixing our schools or fixing our hospitals. So you are anyway somebody who lives in the north of England, unlike a soft southerner like me, and you've also been talking <laughs> and, and you've also been talking to experts sort of locally about the yeah. implications of culling this leg from Birmingham to Manchester. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I had a really interesting conversation last night with Henry Morrison, who's chief executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which, you know, is all about this whole levelling up in the North. And he actually really changed my mind on the importance of HS2, because as someone who is from the North East, you know, I live up in Newcastle, I'm regularly on that East Coast main line, I'm regularly not getting to places on time, you know, there's only one train an hour from Newcastle to Manchester and quite regularly it is cancelled. Getting to Leeds from Newcastle is also really tricky on the train because quite often again there's delays and you just as a working person or anyone who wants to get anywhere on the train line I just really struggle. Are you saying you had your doubts about HS2 though? Yeah, I had my doubts because I just thought it's doing nothing for the Northeast. They'd already said they weren't going to have that connection with Darlington. The Midlands bit up to Leeds got cancelled as well. So I was just like, I don't care about how fast it is to get from Manchester to London or Birmingham. I used to live in Manchester for a long time as well. It's already pretty quick on the trains, although things have slipped there (laughs) as well over the last couple of years in terms of how it's been run. But what I've learned is... This bit between Birmingham and Manchester is absolutely crucial for the whole network for lots of different reasons. First up, in terms of travelling east to west, which is hell at the moment, Mm. it takes an hour on a train to go from Leeds to Manchester and it's only 44 miles. It is ridiculous. But the Birmingham-Manchester bit is a crucial bit of track because it's through a tunnel, it's really expensive. Tunnel track costs something like 10 times more than your normal bit of rail track in the country. And this is part of the Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is going to run from east to west. So with that bit cancelled, Henry was telling me, that means they're going to now need to build that bit for this rail going east to west. That's going to add £15 billion to the bill because it's such an expensive bit of tunnelling. Sorry, I'm being a bit thick here. Explain to me why would cancelling Birmingham to Manchester put up the cost of Northern Powerhouse Rail, the Manchester to Leeds connection? Yeah, it's because that bit of new track is also part of the track 
for Manchester to Leeds. So it, it's actually a bit of track that they're both going to use. Oh, I see. I mean, as things stand, um, the Northern Powerhouse line hasn't even been properly designed yet. It's just a bit on a map, but this now means it's going to add fifteen billion pounds to the cost of it because they'll have to build that bit themselves. And you know, Henry was telling me they've been promised bits of upgrades and things like that, but they they, they need that bit of it. And are there other capacity issues? Because I thought the other issue around that you know the North was just in general that there's just not enough rail capacity. Up yeah. There. Well, again, you know that I've had my mind changed on this because first of all you know understanding that bit of how crucial hs2 is for the line east to west which is one mm. that so many people want to yeah you know i talk to people all the time who work on my show in leeds but live in manchester mm. and they end up having to leave the job because you know unless you're driving and then you've got the hell of the m60 and the m62 which oh my god is painful then you know if you want to get the train you can't rely on being there on time for work because you never know if it's going to run of it and it takes so long but anyway the other element to this which again i I didn't understand until this was explained to me by someone in the rail industry was that what this hs2 will do is take lots of the fast trains off the main traditional Victorian lines we've had forever, and it will put them on the high speed line, which will then free up capacity on those lines for all those interurban journeys, which will improve services and speeds and all of that. I think it's also worth remembering um, in this, this isn't just about the North and the South. You know, we've heard from a lot of people in Wales who don't think HS2 is going to benefit them. But again, it's been explained to me that, you know, all services that go to Wales go through hubs like Crewe and Manchester. So if the express option there is there, if HS2 is there helping all that, that would make it much easier for regional services to go into Wales as well. So the argument being is HS2 is not just about North and South, it's going to help the Welsh as well. I suppose the question really is, all these are tremendously important benefits. There's no question about it, but it is mind-bogglingly expensive. I mean, I was really impressed by some work done by a rather brilliant journalist at the FT called John Burr Murdoch, and he did this calculation over the summer, which showed that HS2 on a completed basis would cost something like 400 million, 400 million pounds for every mile of track, right? I mean, just think about that number for a second, 400 Mm -hmm. million for a mile of track. Whereas in France, a a project they finished in 2017, another high-speed rail network, that cost 46 million per mile. What's the difference then? Well, there are lots of differences. I mean, one is we do have a culture of nimbyism in this country. And because of our planning system, you know, households have the ability to slow down, delay projects, that all adds to cost because, you know, the planning regime is very inefficient. If you look at a country like China, where all the megacities now, 30 megacities are all connected by super fast high-speed rail. Now, they're not a democracy over there. What happens there is, you know, basically the government says we want a super fast train, a high-speed train, get out of the way. And people have to get out of the way. Now, we don't want a culture like that where people have no no rights. But in France, the, the reason they're able to build these things, I mean, the terrain is a bit easier than ours. They have longer stretches of plain. But equally, they just throw money at households. They just say, okay, we're really sorry. Our line is going through your home. You're just going to have to move. Uh, and we'll yeah. give you a load of money. And we just, we don't have that culture. Maybe that's a good thing. But the other side of it is that we have incredibly inefficient contracting. So yeah. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there was this really shocking evidence given 
by HS2 to the Public Accounts Committee in the spring about why the costs of Euston Station had gone up from, I don't know, something like 2.2, 2.5 billion to well over 4 billion. It's now absolutely paused. I mean, did you know that at more than 4 billion, Euston would be the most expensive railway station in the world? Wow. And it doesn't even have a Greg's. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I don't know what to say about that, really. But anyway, the really <laughs> shocking thing that the bosses of HS2 said to the MPs was the reason the cost was so much bigger than what was already a very expensive estimate is because they only knew what it would cost when they started talking to suppliers, contractors. And this is so inefficient. The notion that you would actually come up with a cost for a project as important as that without testing the market properly, mm-hmm. it's a level of incompetence that if a private sector company did that, the shareholders would basically say, right, the whole management of the company should be out and replaced. Actually, the MPs did say to the permanent secretary and you know, said to the various bosses are there, well, who's carrying the can? Who's being mm-hmm. pushed out for this? And you know, there was embarrassed silence. Nobody is taking responsibility for this level of incompetence. It's incredible. And not to kind of defend the government or anything here, but isn't it that it's really difficult as well to work out the value and the cost for something like this? Because it is so long. So I was talking to Justine Green and yesterday, who of course was Transport Secretary when uh, HS2 was announced. And she was saying the problem is everyone's thinking tactically at this and not strategically. Like if you would look at the Victorian Railway when it was built, that was an incredible investment in terms of like £3 billion from like 1845 to 1900 Mm. but yet that it's paid itself back a million times over and again it's this problem which we say in every podcast it's the short-term view it's a short-term view, but it's also, you know, in the Victorian age, we had a very can-do psychology in the UK. Mm-hmm. We just got stuff done. And look, we should be under no illusion. This is about the significance of this incompetence. Every other major economy in the world, with the exception of the US, which is also absolutely useless at infrastructure, but we can come back to that. But other major economies, they all have high-speed railway networks connecting their major centres and even their their regular train services are way better quality on the whole than ours. The economic cost to us of having such inefficient transport, and it's not just rail, we don't have enough trams in towns, we don't have enough metro systems within towns, commuting is incredibly inefficient in this country, more or less wherever you are, including in London, where it's terrible. One of the reasons productivity is so low in this country is we have terrible transport. We are not a big country, we are a relatively small country, and our failures when it comes to public transport, it should be a source of national shame. Yeah, it is. It's it's embarrassing, isn't it? And this is a disaster for business confidence as well, isn't it? Because it shows we cannot stick to like these big ticket public sector investments. I mean, I was really amazed. Did you see those remarks by the new owner of Birmingham City? Yeah. And, and it's incredible, isn't it? Basically saying it, it's a joke. He was basically saying he bought Birmingham City on the basis that people from Manchester would be able to come down to Birmingham relatively quickly to watch a game. You know, he feels he's been desperately let down. Yes, it's so important to so many elements of our economy, isn't it? And yeah. also the other big thing for me, because I've done a lot with the apprentices who've joined as part of the HS2 schemes that various companies have run. And 
what's going to happen to all that? Like we're, we're wrecking our skills base for the future as well. Like are they going to get apprenticeships cancelled or ones that were planned are now not going to happen? And that is just so disappointing no, and is. damaging it for is. the economy. And, and not it, to mention, of course, yeah. the, the fact that it's going to leave Northerners even, you know, in a trickier position yeah. to get to work and things. And that means we lose talent. We have a talent drain in the North because everyone moves to the areas where, the jobs are rather than staying at home and being able to commute to them and yeah it's a joke i could rant about this for a long time but i'll shut up we could i was quite amused i was just trying to think of some appropriate metaphors one of the investors in birmingham city as you know is that legendary quarterback tom brady and the implication was he was seeing the trip from manchester to birmingham as the equivalent of one of his massive throws i think he now (laughs) thinks it's it's like throwing through treacle or something anyway right i'm now slightly losing the will to live with hs2 so let's move (laughs) on what what's next on the agenda so rupert murdoch at the age of 92 has announced he is stepping down as chairman of his companies fox and news corp he's handing over the reins to his eldest son lachlan from mid-november we're going to get into the why we think he's doing all this and and what's going on and what it'll mean in a more but let me just uh, give you a little flavor of Rupert Murdoch the man in terms of you know his life and what he's been through so his dad was a famous war correspondent he left his son an Australian newspaper when he died Murdoch was just 22 when he took over the running of the paper the Adelaide News and he massively increased circulation by focusing on sensationalism you know he quickly expanded the business he bought a lot of other titles in, in Australia and New Zealand and then in 1960 he bought his first UK media business which was the news of the world within a year he then got the sun and he made it Britain's biggest daily selling newspaper so he was really on a roll with all this I was watching some old archive footage of when he was interviewed actually by David Dimbleby back in the 1960s and he was very you know confident in talking about how he is very happy to interfere editorially and my god we have seen that played out so often haven't we over the last few years so just to add to it by uh, the 80s he was owning uh, Sunday Times and the Times he he moved all of those for newspaper titles into a huge printing plant in London and then sacked 5,000 workers and that led to massive strikes outside the Wapping site he then got the launch of the satellite TV service Sky and he bought its rival BSB and you know made them hugely profitable also bought 20th Century Fox and launched Fox Broadcasting Company. Uh, he sold off in 2019, didn't he? Uh, 20th Century Fox and National Geographic to Disney for 71.3 billion pounds. And still to this day, him and his family are valued at, well, it's over 17 billion dollars, isn't it? Which is an incredible amount. Yeah, and that's just, and that, what I'm just saying. Look, they took a, 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 an incredible amount of money from the sale of 20th Century Fox. They made an incredible amount of money out of the sale of Sky. You know, these are very, very, very wealthy mm. individuals worth tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. And the picture we've all seen of them thinly disguised via succession is not a million miles from the truth. No, it's so fascinating. That, isn't it? So he's 92. Now, everyone might be thinking, well, that's why he's stepping down because he's 92. But that's not what you're hearing is it no i mean obviously i've been talking to lots of people connected to the business and they do say all of them that there's a bit of a mystery here about why he's stepping down now they say that his health is pretty good that he's still as sharp as he was and here's the little nugget that was you know sort of extraordinary a mate of mine was talking to one of his children who disclosed that 
they didn't know on the morning that he announced his departure, this child of Rupert Murdoch did not know that he was going. <gasps> That's a plot twist. So that is sort of astonishing. It is, yeah. I mean, it's so like succession. It's unreal because when you look at uh, his children as well, they've, there's various points they've been in and out of the business. I mean, even Lachlan himself, who you know is now going to be taking over as chairman, he'd left, didn't he? He left the company in 2005 and he said he was never going to work with his dad again and then ended up coming back you know, in the wake of all the phone hacking stuff and Wendy Deng divorce and everything else. So it, it, it's incredible, all of this. And, and the ups and downs have been extraordinary. I mean, I so when James Murdoch came over to run Sky and then took over the running of the newspapers, you know, he was regarded at the time as the one most likely to succeed. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with him there. There was one occasion I was at the Edinburgh you know, television festival and we were both giving speeches and we had a very very public row you know it's it's supposed to be this great honor to give these speeches we were in this great posh dinner sitting next to each other and he started saying something about the bbc and i was at the bbc at the time and i you know anyway i slightly lost my rack and said you know basically you do not understand how important the bbc is to the maintenance of high quality impartial news. You know, he was saying, no, no, the BBC destroys competition. It's a monopolist that undermines the ability to have a thriving news industry. I have to say, I suspect that his position on this has changed because famously, James Murdoch, no longer the favoured son, can't stand Fox News and has been a great Mm. critic of the way that Fox News, in his view, has both distorted democracy in general in the US. Obviously, James Murdoch would not be a Trump fan. And obviously, Fox News is regarded as having been quite important to the success of Trump, which sort of brings us on actually to this other thing, which is Murdoch, amazing in a business sense, and we should not underestimate his business achievements. You know, when he consolidated the satellite TV industry in this country in the late 80s, early 90s, Sky was losing an absolute fortune. He is a long-term thinker. He absorbed those losses for years until he had this amazing breakthrough in terms of working out that people would pay for live football. He then invested a colossal sum of money in British football, which, which was absolutely central to the creation of the Premier League. And at that point, uh, Sky had something to sell and the rest is history just in terms of the way that Sky then turned into mm-hmm. this absolutely formidably profitable business. So one should not underestimate the way that he invests for the long term, which is what you want to see from a successful business person. But then there are plenty of people who would say he also has way too much power in a political sense. Labour lost the 92 general election on a general election it did not expect to lose partly because it was felt it got on the wrong side of Rupert Murdoch. There were those, I mean, really striking, some would say shocking headlines on the front of the the Sun newspaper attacking Neil Kinnock, with the last person to leave Britain turn the lights off was the famous headline. And and that's still happening now, isn't it? Politicians trying to bend Murdoch's ear. Like I was talking to one of my mates who was quite senior at News Corp, who was saying that like they were forever seeing like people like Peter Patel in the lift 
going up to see him. And, you know, to the point where he said, I honestly thought she was working in the lift. She was there that often. And, you know, all these stories about how much the politicians are trying to, to get him on side because he still has this power of being able to basically control what the nation thinks about our politicians. And it's not just here, it's in Australia, as I say, Fox News being, you know, mm. one of the most influential forces in American politics over recent years. Also, just to remind people, he has these annual parties. Some might have thought that Keir Starmer wouldn't go to a Murdoch party, given that he was director of public prosecutions at the time that the whole phone hacking thing was going on. And, you know, there are many people around Murdoch who dislike Starmer because of the way that, for example, he brought a prosecution against Rebecca Brooks. Starmer was at the last party talking to Mm. Rupert Murdoch, Rishi Sunak. Of course, at the last party. And, uh, you know, a picture was painted for me of what was going on there. And basically, Murdoch is in the middle of the room and he's sort of holding court. And each one of these leaders is ushered up and sort of pays homage to this man. I actually saw it at first hand at the World Economic Forum in Davos years ago. I was with David Cameron, right, leader of the Tory party, prime minister. It was something like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I said to Cameron, well, you know, why are you still up? What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm waiting for my appointment to see Rupert Murdoch. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I said, well, for God's sake, why yeah. would somebody like you feel you have to? We said, well, look, he's influential. It's important that I have a conversation with the, the power of this man was astonishing or is astonishing still, because let's be clear, he's still going to have a role. He's still an owner, but he's not the chairman anymore. Yeah, but that's the thing about what it's going to mean now. Because, I mean, if you, you mentioned Fox News and obviously they've got in quite a lot of trouble, haven't they, to do with supporting Trump. Like earlier this year, they had to settle a, a defamation case, which was put to them by the voting machine company Dominion. It was something like £640 million. And this is because Dominion said that the broadcaster helped spread Trump's baseless rumours about widespread fraud during the 2020 election, which of course then Dominion say damaged their business. And they still face another similar lawsuit uh, with another voting technology company, Smartmatic. So power as he has is also dangerous when he gets involved in the editorial though, isn't it? In terms of who he's backing. And and what do you think is going to happen now though, Robert? I mean, he's He's obviously not chairman anymore, but he's still talking very openly about being involved. And so is it going to change? When any individual has as much power over politics like that, you know, there are all sorts of questions for the health of democracy. So I think, you know, there's always been those questions around Murdoch. The really interesting question is what now happens to these businesses under the stewardship of of Lachlan? And, And there are you know, this is a complicated issue. First of all, they own a lot of newspapers. It's possible to create a cash generative business out of newspapers, but these are basically declining assets. Fewer people are buying paper newspapers. They've got to go digital. Finding ways of making money out of digital are hard. There are quite a lot of people who think, for example, that the Sun newspaper will go completely digital in the next year or two. That's an interesting question. There's another interesting question. Somebody said to me, if Rupert Murdoch ever dies, which is an interesting way of putting it, (laughs) if Rupert Murdoch ever dies, there will be this huge battle between the children and you know the key ones are Liz James Lachlan and Prue they all have big stakes in the business not all of them like the businesses you know as i said James doesn't really like the british newspapers he doesn't really like fox news it's not quite clear what elizabeth murdoch's position is is on all of this but because they've got 
control in terms of ownership of the shares, there will at mm-hmm. some point be a big battle about which assets do they keep, which do they get rid of within News Corp, within Fox. There are also executives at a lower level who are all sort of jockeying for position. Who's going to be, you know, who's going to end up running the thing? You know, this is the real life version of that wonderful soap opera we've been talking about. Yes, succession. succession. But the fundamental point about all of this is television and newspapers it's not that they're not you know important businesses anymore but they are all decline these are all declining businesses yeah. Right. So these are challenged businesses where there has to be some really important strategic choices made. This is tricky stuff. And finally, just one final point. We talked about some of you know, Murdoch's success. He has had failures. MySpace. You know, yeah, he bought MySpace and he wrote almost the entire half a billion value off because he didn't get digital. And they still don't really have cutting edge digital stuff. And that's the world we're in. So there are huge questions, huge questions of business sort and a political sort about the Mm. future of of this empire. Yeah. Just to end before we wrap up, um, I mean, you know, we mentioned right at the beginning, you and I have both met him. I I first met him when I was, um, I think I was about 23. I was working on weekend business at the BBC as a researcher. He came in to do an interview. I think he he wanted to talk about business taxation and, and how bad it was in this country. And I was really struck by his height. And his frame, like he's, he was the same height as me. And, you know, normally whenever I feel like whenever I meet big business leaders, they always are big as well and quite commanding when they walk into a room. Now they're not. There are lots of really tiny business leaders. No, but I said, well. I'm not sure. Okay, maybe like there are a few. I I, I think we have a conversation. (laughs) We talked talked about business leaders, particularly the more entrepreneurial ones, having had terrible childhoods. But I think there's also, well, I think there might, in some cases, there's an inverse relationship between height and and ambition. Entrepreneurs are small and CEOs are tall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, he was very nice to me. So <laughs> he is definitely an entrepreneur. You know, he he built a global empire, as you said, from a newspaper in yeah. Australia. And I'm sure we're going to come back to this because I think that the issue about net good or net bad for the world is a very interesting question. Mm, yeah, really important one. Okay, should we have a break? Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. What are we going to move on to, Steph? We're going to talk about inheritance tax, which has got everyone riled up this week, hasn't it? It totally has. I mean, there's the government is looking at abolishing it, uh, reforming it first, and maybe the Tories making a pledge at the next general election to abolish it altogether. What's your view on that? Yeah, interesting. Just to remind everyone what it is, for those of you who don't know, so it's a tax of 40% that you pay if you inherited a state worth more than £325,000, although that goes up to half a million if it's a main residence being passed on to children or grandchildren. And for a couple, passing it on, it goes up to a million pounds. So just to be clear, I think what you are saying, and I understand this to be true, is that... If you are a couple, right, no inheritance tax gets paid as long as you pass your your house on to your kids on an estate worth one million Mm. pounds. Is that right? Yeah. No inheritance tax on it on an estate that's worth one million pounds. It's up to a million pounds where they're passing on the main residence to children or grandchildren. On that basis, how many people 
actually end up paying inheritance tax. Yeah, well, that's it. it I mean, the, the latest figures looking at HMRC's figures on this was um, for in the year 2020 to 21, it was just 3.7% of deaths where anyone paid any inheritance tax on it. So that's what says one in 25 people. Yes. Right. Or one in 25 households pay inheritance tax. Yeah, which is a, a, a tiny amount, isn't it? And in terms of tax revenues, it only accounts for something like it's less than 1% of total tax revenues, you know, compared to what income tax is about 33%, VAT is about 20% of tax revenues. But it still raises it still raises about 7 billion quid, I think. And, you know, 7 billion quid at a time when there's not enough money being spent on schools and hospitals. It's not to be sniffed at, is it? No, it isn't. And it's expected to reach 8 billion this year because more people are obviously being dragged into this because of the rising value of houses and the fact that the threshold hasn't moved to kind of reflect that. And I think that's what What's annoying the particularly rich people is that the threshold hasn't moved in that time. Well, it is politically, it is, it's a very intriguing tax. I mean, one of the reasons why quite a lot of Tories have been arguing to abolish it is, with two reasons. One is they take the view that it's somehow unfair uh, to tax the wealth that people have accumulated over their lifetimes. But some would say a huge amount of that wealth in recent years has been essentially a lucky break in the sense that, you know, until recently, we had an era of incredibly low interest rates. We had 15, 20 years of almost free money. That led to this asset price boom. And the price of pretty much every house in the country went through the roof. If you just happen to be of a generation my generation, who you know, bought prices, you bought a house cheaply. I don't believe that the value of my house has gone up because I'm an absolute business genius. I think it's gone up because I've been lucky to have been born in an era where there were too few houses and interest rates were very low. So the notion that, in some sense, it is immoral to tax the property when you know I die just seems to me to be nuts. There's another aspect to this, though. I was so the Sunday Times broke this story about Rishi Sunak wanting to abolish inheritance tax, and it included this line from a government advisor that you pointed out that most people in this country will never pay, don't pay inheritance tax, or rather their their, their heirs won't pay inheritance tax, and will never pay inheritance tax. But most people don't apparently know that. Apparently, most people think that they are going to pay inheritance tax. Yeah, I had this conversation with my partner yesterday in the car because she was saying to me, oh, this inheritance tax, that would be great if they scrap it, blah, 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 blah. And then she, I started telling her about it and she went, oh, what? So it probably doesn't even affect us anyway. And I was like, no, and she went, don't scrap it. <laughs> and so there is this view, I think anyone who's kind of, you know, I guess middle class these days, or they've got an asset, which is, you know, a house that's gone up, as you say, in value quite a lot, instantly thinks that the, the government's going to take 40% of that when they pop their clogs. But the, the other thing about this, though, is it, there's a lot of loopholes where the particularly very rich manage to get around this, whether it's, you know, gifting people three grand a year every year because that's tax-free, or there's other ways to get around of it. And one of the things that I know caught both of our eyes was this impact on the alternative investment market 
aim. Tell people what the aim market is because not everybody knows. So yeah, the aim market is, uh, I guess it's for smaller, riskier businesses to list on because the cost of listing on it are lower and it's not as strict on regulation and there's about 800 companies listed on it. Average market cap is something like just under 400 million pounds. And you're talking about brands like the names you'll know, uh, Fever Tree, who obviously make all the tonics and things there on there. Young's, which is the hotel and pub chain. You've got, I don't know, CVS, which is like got vet services, 500 of them. And a lot of people have put money in the aim or listen and bought shares in it because of inheritance tax to try and avoid it because aim shares are exempt from inheritance tax once you've held them for two years it's a bit of a quirk in it and it's estimated that there's something like a third of all aim shares are held for tax reasons so one of the possible implications of scrapping inheritance tax could be that everyone starts selling their shares in AIM and not investing in it, and it could crash the market. And this plays into this problem in the UK, which we've actually already talked about in an earlier episode, whereby the cost of capital, the cost of raising money for British businesses is already too high. AIM is a smaller stock market. As you say, it's for it's regarded as being for sort of slightly riskier companies, certainly companies that don't want the same regulatory burden that's imposed on them if they're on the main London stock market. But the main London stock market, as we pointed out before, companies on that stock market are valued way lower than companies on the US market, on various European markets. And when the valuation is lower, it basically means that it's more expensive for companies to raise money. If it's more expensive for companies to raise money, they invest less in the UK. And that's bad for all of us. So it is interesting, this idea that if you abolished inheritance tax, there would be less money going into these riskier companies. And that would basically be bad for Britain again. Because, again, there would be a shortage of investment capital. So the ramifications of this are really quite serious. I mean, it will be interesting to see the government announces, or if Rishi Sunak, leader of the Tory party in this case, announces that a plan would be to abolish inheritance tax, what the Labour Party will then say about that. You've pointed out that when people are told that essentially this is a you know, a tax break for people whose estates are worth more than a million pounds. Quite a lot of people say, well, that's just not fair. We live in a time of grotesque inequality, whether it comes to the distribution of wealth or when it comes to, you know, what people earn. And so I think you could see a scenario where this would feel in political terms quite like what happened after Liz Truss announced that she was abolishing the 45% rate of tax. Yeah. yeah. And actually it wouldn't impress the rich people. Like everyone thought when she said she was going to cut um, the higher rate of tax, everyone thought rich people would be really happy. But as you said on that podcast last week, it was that a lot of them were saying she's totally mad for doing it. Yeah. Hedge fund managers worth a billion pounds were ringing me up saying she's gone nuts. This is ridiculous. We don't need the money. You know, around the place, I think there is a sense, even from the very wealthy, that we need a UK where people do feel that the wealth and the income is shared out in a more fair way. And I think even a lot of wealthy people would be a bit uncomfortable about Mm. the notion that all inheritance tax is abolished. The other thing, just looking at potential impact on this as well, is is people questioning about what it would mean for the housing market as well, because will it mean that 
if there's no inheritance tax to pay, will it mean people will hang on to their family homes for longer? You know, does it dilute the desire, I guess, to pass down the capital or to downsize? And then will that then reduce the supply of houses and increase prices? And, you know, similarly, will it mean older people will hold on to their money? I think we do need to just explain that point, which is when you have inheritance tax, which you've got at the moment, there is some incentive for older people, the boomer generation, the Gen X generation, to make gifts to their children at an earlier stage. Because if you make a gift to a child and then you don't die for seven years, at that point, you know, the gift is no longer subject to inheritance tax. There is a risk that if you abolished inheritance tax, that older people who have all the housing wealth would not distribute, would not give gifts to their children. And at a time when the number of young people with the resources to buy a house is at an all-time, well, you'd have to go back basically to the sort of 30s and 40s. But in terms of the modern era, you know, there's been a collapse in younger people buying homes, or rather the average age at which somebody buys a home has gone up from, I think it was you know, not that long ago, 15 years ago, I think the average age of a, somebody buying a home was not far off 25, and it's now something like 35. Yeah. Right? You know, even at that age, you know, lots of people are struggling to afford property, and they do rely on presents, you know, the, the ghastly bank of mum and dad, to use that phrase. They do rely on those gifts. And if you abolished inheritance tax, there would be more of an incentive for people not to pass stuff on until they die. And that would mean, because, you know, if you think about it, people are not dying till they're sort of, you know, 80, 90. Their kids are not going to be inheriting stuff till they're sort of 60, 70. That's quite late to buy a house. Yeah, it is. And obviously, then in your 60s, if you are, uh, you know, in your 60s, when your parents die, that's going to be when you're thinking probably about retirement, isn't it? Rather than trying to get a house or get on the, the housing ladder. I know we've had lots of questions in and I think one of them from Ben neatly links into all of this about, you know, we're kind of touching on it now about intergenerational fairness in money terms, because that is a big issue, isn't it? You know, young people today aren't enjoying like the big generational living standard improvements. And they're kind of struggling to match the milestones that they're kind of the generations of both of them enjoyed, buying a house being one of them, but also job security and things like that. Yeah, I mean, look, intergenerational unfairness has so many manifestations. I mean, one of them, and again, we've talked about this before, is that working age benefits have fallen in real terms over the last 15 years while the basic pension has gone up, right? So there's been an income shift from younger people to older people, which is obviously very significant. You know, the fact that wealth is disproportionately held by people, you know, over 50, over 60 is another example of that intergenerational unfairness. And then so many of the world's big problems, climate change being the obvious one, right? If you're, you know, later in life, frankly, the costs of climate change are significantly less than they are if you're 20, because it's, you know, on, on current forecasts, the onset of really extreme weather, desertification, turning currently arable areas into desert, all of this is happening progressively. The aspects of, of intergenerational unfairness are everywhere. Yeah. 
you know, I spend a, a lot of time talking to young people about aspirations and things. And obviously now the job world has completely changed. You know, you, you don't have a kind of neatly packaged career anymore. So yeah, it's very much the gig economy, much more flexible working. You change employers quite regularly. And as things stand, there's no real incentive to save, is there? I think the view is that, you know, lots of young people, I'm never going to get on the housing market and to even afford a deposit, it's going to cost me a, a fortune and that money could be better spent on enjoying myself now you know something like house prices are now nine times the average earnings so it takes an awful lot for people to afford the houses and the saving bit really worries me in terms of particularly pensions and things because there are so few young people thinking about pensions now and I know obviously automatic enrollment has has made a bit of a difference and for those of you who don't know this is something that came in and I think it was 2012, I remember covering it on breakfast. And that was when you join a company, if you were over 22 and the company was a certain size or whatever, you were automatically put onto their pension scheme, a private pension scheme. It's better than nothing, but the savings rates under an auto-enrollment are too low to make a massive difference to people in retirement. And I know it's, it's the bill's just been passed, hasn't it, to include anyone now from the age of 18 and on any salary, which means hopefully there'll be more younger people who'll just automatically save into these pensions. I mean, there is a, there is a paradox here, which I have alluded to before, which is in the short term, the fact that interest rates are going up, the fact we've got a weaker housing market is terrible for any younger person who just happens to have somehow got onto the housing market because they've got big mortgages and the value of their asset, which they've scrimped and, and saved to get a hold of, is falling. Paradoxically, if prices come down and stay at a lower level for a while and interest rates stay at an elevated level and inflation also leads to higher levels of wages for working people paradoxically you know you could be in a position where a more housing becomes more affordable but also the returns on saving with it basically the you know you want to put money into safe assets if the interest rate is at a higher level you will get more return for your money so it's a sort of there is this contradiction between what's terrible for all of us now because it's bearing down on economic activity you know higher interest rates in the medium term it could create a structure for both saving and uh, the potential for buying houses that makes everything a bit more affordable for younger people. But that transition to that position is painful. Yeah. I um, bought my first house in my early 20s and in Middlesbrough because I couldn't afford to buy one where I lived. I lived in London at the time, but I couldn't, you know, I was working at the BBC, but I couldn't afford to buy a house in London. But everyone kept saying, you've got to get on the property ladder. That's what you should be focusing on for your future. So I bought a house in Middlesbrough for £130,000. I'm just in the process of selling it 20 years later for (laughs) £130,000. And it's like, you know, there's, there's such a north-south divide in all of this as well. Loads of people have enjoyed their houses going up massively in value in the south and mine hasn't changed. And I did that because I thought that was better than a pension when I was young because that's what everyone kept saying. And I know there's lots of people who haven't managed to make quite a lot of money on their property and that's been great for them. But there's just such a lack of, I don't know, I guess financial literacy or understanding it feels like when you're buying a house it's a gamble and to even get the deposit in the first place is a nightmare i mean i think this all of this would, would matter less if we had a decent stock of private rentals i mean part of the problem of course is not only do young people struggle 
to get on the housing ladder, but what they have to rent is simply not up to standard. And so the housing crisis is a huge issue and it's one we'll be returning to. Yes, right. Shall we have a look at some more questions then? Thank you to everyone who's been sending stuff in to us. Just a reminder, it's restismoney at gmail.com. That's the email address. If you want to send them on our socials, obviously just search the rest is money and you will find us on there and you can, or you can just send them to our X account, our Instagram, whatever you fancy, and we will get those. We're on TikTok as well. I keep forgetting that. So let's pick up on those, some of those questions that we have been sent. We've been talking recently, actually, it was in response to a reader's question. And, you know, that was about the fact the oil price and the petrol price have been going up very sharply. There's a very interesting question from John Woodford. He says, as cartels are banned in every industry, why is OPEC allowed? And I guess it's about why does the World Trade Organization not intervene and say that what OPEC does shouldn't be allowed? Yeah, I mean, they're untouchable OPEC, aren't they? Let me just give you the, you know, where OPEC came from. So it was formed in 1960. It was when 13 oil producing nations, uh, mainly in the Middle East and Africa, got together to create a cartel to fix the worldwide supply of oil and therefore, of course, its price. Now, in 2016, when oil prices were particularly low, OPEC then joined forces with 10 other oil producers and they came OPEC plus. And um, if you, if you want to know the numbers on that, those original members produce about 30% of the world's crude oil. Saudi Arabia is the biggest single day supplier. I think it's something like 10 million barrels a day. Then when they expanded, it brought Russia into the fold. Similarly, and Russia is still there, which is sort of amazing, isn't it? That Putin is still in there. Exactly. That they haven't been booted out is unreal. Uh, and again, Russia produces an incredible amount of oil, 10 million barrels a day. And together, that's you know 40% of world crude oil. But why doesn't the World Trade Organization... Why is it legal? Why is OPEC legal? They can't do anything about it, though, can they? Because this has been formed by governments of, of foreign countries and the US courts don't But if don't the have WTO any... says, for example, price fixing by a country is illegal, it says, you know, so for example, you know, cases have been brought against countries like China for dumping uh, goods in other countries at unfair prices. For uh, Why is OPEC untouchable? Isn't it because it's strength in numbers in the sense that there's so many of them that they can't do anything about it? And the court system in the World Trade Organization, it's not applicable because it's so many foreign governments together. Well, I think it's probably that, as I think, as I understand it, the WTO can take cases against countries... Yeah. And I think it's even taken cases against the European Union single market. But I think, you know, if there are law any lawyers listening, they can let us know. I think it doesn't have scope over groups of countries in these affiliations, exactly, that's as my it were. Point. But that feels wrong to me. You know, if you believe in free trade, then countries should not be able to get together and fix the terms of trade, which is what OPEC does, and be untouchable. And they are untouchable. They're totally untouchable. And the thing is that because they control such a large amount of oil, if they want, every time they're ever kind of, they feel threatened. Like I remember, I think it was last year, Biden sent a load of his team to try and lobby them to not cut oil production. And then the OPEC came out and just went mad and said, well, don't threaten us. And they can literally just turn the taps off for oil if they want to. And that is why they seem to get away with it. It's not fair. But unfortunately, there are currently no rules to stop them from doing it, which is probably not the answer uh, <laughs> our listener, John, was hoping for. But that's the reality. 
Now, should we go on to another question? Yeah, the next one is about the Chinese housing crisis, which I know you're really interested in. This is from Daryl. He said, I wanted to ask if Robert and Steph would be able to talk about or explain the Chinese housing crisis and how it may affect the UK. Well, the way that it'll affect the UK is the simplest bit, which is that the Chinese housing crisis is contributing to the economic slowdown in China. And, you know, China has been the engine of global growth for the last... Oh, God, 30 years or so. And when China slows down and the growth rate in China is currently forecast to be four or five percent, it's half the rate it was growing only a few years ago. So when China slows down, the global economy slows down and, you know, that makes us poorer as well. That's the simplistic version. Now, the reason we've got a Chinese housing crisis is because there's been, for years now, I mean, years and years and years, the most astonishing amount of building in China. And it's been financed both through more conventional routes, but it's also been financed through so-called shadow banks. And these shadow banks are institutions that lent money, then packaged up the loans and sold them to ordinary Chinese savers and offered them in the form of investments paying a high interest rate, incredible amounts of money have gone into the shadow banks from just ordinary Chinese people wanting a return on their saving. But because of the housing crash, lots of investors are not now being paid the money that they think they're owed by these shadow banks and these investment institutions. This is an amazing story, in fact, because it combines both an incredible business and economic failure with the potential for, and actually the reality, for big social unrest. Okay, we don't have democracy in China, but when people lose money, and you know, this is true all over the world, they get very upset, and thousands and thousands of Chinese people are losing money, having put their savings into these unregulated institutions, which then pass the money on to the housing market. And we're actually seeing something we don't see that often in China, which is protests on the streets from these savers. This is causing a massive headache in Beijing, and it is therefore quite interesting that it's now taking on a kind of political dimension this morning. So one of the biggest property developers, uh, huge, is a, is a company called Evergrande. And its boss has been put under arrest today by Beijing, right? Which just shows you quite how mammoth this story is. Yeah, it's incredible. And those um, pictures that are out at the minute of all the empty buildings and things and it's just those cities. I've been to China loads of times. And one of the things yeah. that's amazing about China is forever, it, well, I say forever, the last 20 years, right? We've had these empty cities, these ghost cities. So, you know, I, I remember 10 years ago, I made an amazing film about all these new developments where nobody was living. Right. And, it, you know, they are ghost cities. And, and that was causing headaches for individual developers. But there comes a headache where the glut of property is not just a problem for individual businesses. It's a problem for the whole economy. And that's the really interesting question about China is, will the government bail out these businesses, bail out the savers? The, the sums of money involved run to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. This is a huge moment. It's one I'm sure we'll come back to as well. So thank you for that question. Do we have a look at another one? We've got an interesting question from Xavier. It says, I've just read Regenesis by George Monbiot, uh, great campaigner on environmental issues. He argues that we devour the earth to feed ourselves. Has there been an assessment of the prize associated with a leaner food production sector? 
Well, this is something that I think lots of people are, are looking into. Um, I was reading some research by Deloitte on this, who've looked at how much the kind of food system, how much food production contributes to our emissions and what that means. It's massive, isn't it? I mean, it's methane in particular, isn't it? Yeah. So it, it's, it accounts for roughly 27% of total emissions from all sectors comes from food production and you know about two-thirds of that is agriculture forestry how we use the land and then the remaining third comes from processing transport packaging you know and as you say it's the livestock emits something like 45 percent of all methane emissions in the world so there's been lots of talk about well how do you you solve this because the biggest problem is at the beginning of the supply chain in terms of food so it's not necessarily you know as i said it's like a third is to do with processed transport but the big problem problem is right at the beginning and you know typically as we know farmers have very limited money to try and radically change their systems but the way we are producing food is not sustainable and it isn't healthy it's meat in particular isn't it i mean as you remember rishi sunak recently said as as, as well as not forcing us to have the seven bins, which they were never going to force us to do. He also <laughs> said, you know, they were not going to impose a tax or deter us from eating meat. But there is quite a big argument, isn't there, that we should eat less meat, not only for yeah. health reasons, but for the health of the planet. Yeah, there is. Um, uh, but I think it's a bigger problem than just us stopping eating meat, isn't it? Because if you look at how conventional farming works, you know, it's a... It's a kind of very traditional degenerating system which has a big negative impact on the environment. And actually what we need is a system that is much more innovative. I, I don't know if you've ever seen these like vertical farms. I've been to quite a few of these where you can actually, you know, grow crops and things in vertical towers rather than taking up lots of land. Well, I thought the big problem was farting cows. Well, it, it is the big problem and we do need to eat less meat, um, but we do need to, but you can't stop, you know, are we really going to be in a system where everyone going to be forced to eat less meat like I don't know about you but I'm already stressed out when we have meat-free Mondays at work so <laughs> I don't know how much how many people in the world want to stop eating meat I don't think it's going to be that many of them and I know okay you could put all the climate change points to them but I think the bigger thing is that farming needs to change and you know as I say farmers don't necessarily have the money for all that so we just need to think about how farmers can be helped to farm in a, in a different way and yes we need to move to more vegetable based stuff but then comes the problem of ultra processed food as well because if you look at meat alternative foods I mean I'm going to go into a whole other topic that we might cover another time but you know a lot of those meat alternatives have been criticised for ultra-processed food. So we've got one more question, haven't we? So should we get into that? Yeah, something that is a topic that kind of plays into what we've been talking about today in terms of intergenerational fairness is a question from George who says, my friend's a nurse on 28 grand and she pays a marginal tax rate of 41%, which has been worked out from 20% income tax, 12% national insurance, and 9% student loan. Yeah, so I've looked at these figures. I don't think they're 100% right. I don't think the nurse should be paying 12% NI. I think she, national insurance, I think she should be paying a bit less. But the point that George is making is a, a right one, which is that somebody on 28,000, it seems terribly unfair that they're paying a marginal tax rate of roughly 40%, which really no one should be paying until they're on much higher earnings. So there are two things here. One is it tells you something about 
I mean, it's back to this intergenerational unfairness question. If you've got a student loan, it does mean that you are paying a considerably higher effective tax rate. And it's why it's still a huge political issue, whether there's some way of reforming the student loan system so that the burden on younger people isn't so great. And we're yet to hear from Labour on what their plans are in this respect. But there is a second issue, which I think we, we need just to come back to in a proper way at some point, which is we have an irrational tax system at loads of different points within the tax system. Benefits get withdrawn really rapidly, which means you have less of an incentive to work more and earn more because, again, the implied marginal tax rate is very high. And even when you get to earnings near to 100,000, you lose uh, various childcare benefits. The um, the really impressive uh, sort of lawyer, uh, sort of bloke who specializes in tax, Dan Needle, has done some work on this. And, you know, he says the effective tax rate at that level because you lose your childcare benefits go to astronomical levels. So any rational chancellor who wants to improve the work incentives will just look at this whole issue, how various different points of the income spectrum, the amount that people lose effectively in tax or equivalence to tax is way too high. Well, brilliant. Thank you for those questions. Do keep sending them in to us as well. Rest is money at gmail.com and also on our uh, social media pages. But yeah, that's it from us. Yeah, it's been great as always see you all soon bye bye bye